James chapter number 1. James chapter number 1 tonight. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. James chapter number 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, that'll be all we'll use in the preaching, but I want to read verse number 13 and 14 for our introduction as well. It says, let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust." And enticed. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. Lord, it's a blessing to get to be in the house of God. And Lord, we've come tonight to hear from you. We need you tonight. Lord, this isn't just a, a box that we're checking off. This isn't just a duty or responsibility we're fulfilling or a formality that we're exercising. Lord, we've come to meet with you. We've come to hear from you. And I pray that you'd have your will and way tonight, that you'd speak to our hearts, minister the truth of your word to our lives, and may we have our hearts open and humble to receive the truth as it's given unto us. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When we read the book of James, we are reading a portion of the Bible that is often called one of the Hebrew Christian epistles. James, along with First and Second Peter and the book of Hebrews, are written to first century Jews that have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not Jews religiously anymore. They've been born again into the family of God. They are Christians now. Uh, but they very much are ethnically and culturally caught sort of in between two worlds. And the book of Hebrews is, is much occupied with, with striving to encourage them to cast off any vestiges of religious identity as Jews and instead to see their identity in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. When we're speaking of James here, we're not speaking of James, the brother of John, but rather James, the half-brother of our Lord. And he was the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. He's writing here, and, and it's important to understand the context of, of who and what James is writing to and about. James is writing to a group of people that are experiencing a severe trial. 
James uses a word, the word temptation. I read a couple of extra verses before or after we read our text because I wanted to lay in stark contrast two concepts that are found in the Bible. And I want you to see them in the Bible. I want you to see it in Scripture. The word temptation has two connotations to it. In other words, it can be defined in sort of two ways. And the context is what dictates which definition we're looking at. And James chapter number one shows a a perfectly clear example of that because it uses the word temptation in both ways. In our text that we read, temptation is spoken of as something that is dispensed at the hand of God, that is to be viewed as a blessing, that is to be endured, that is to be grown through. But when we come to verses 13 and 14, the word tempted is used in a very different way. It says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now, the Bible describes the temptation in the earlier portion of this book as us falling into this temptation, as God having a purpose and a plan, and as God even rewarding us for enduring that temptation. But then James says in verse 13 that when we're tempted, we shouldn't say I'm tempted of God. But here in verse 13, we have the key for he says this, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. You see, the word temptation, it can mean one of two things. It can mean the solicitation to do evil. That's how we often think of the word temptation. When we say, well, I'm tempted by something, we mean, well, I'm tempted to perform or to engage with or to partake in something that is forbidden by God. And I should not partake in it. I'm tempted to do wrong. I'm tempted to sin. And that's what James means in verses 13 and 14. But then the word temptation, it can also mean a severe or arduous trial or affliction or season of suffering that we're going through. And so James is using the word temptation in that sense in these opening verses. Now, we might ask the question, why is he writing about trials? Why is he writing about temptations in the sense of suffering and in the sense of affliction? Well, we have the answer to that in the very first verse of this book, because we see who his audience is. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. In other words, James is writing to a group of people. They are Jews by their ethnic identity. They are Christians in that they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they have been scattered, meaning they have been driven from their home. They are now exiles and refugees in a distant land or in a distant place. This is a group of people that are experiencing a severe trial in their life. Now, we don't have to wonder when this happened. Acts chapter number 8 tells us when this happens. In verse number 1 of that chapter, it says Saul, speaking of Paul the apostle at a later date, but at this time he was known as Saul of Tarsus before he was saved. And Saul was consenting unto his death, meaning Stephen's death, the very first martyr of the New Testament church. And it says, and at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now, when the Bible describes a persecution, it means a physical persecution, a political persecution, an economic persecution. It got so heavy and it got so heated for them that the Bible says they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, lest you think that's hyperbolic, I want you to notice the very next phrase says this, except the apostles. I don't know that I've ever really looked at it in this way, but James goes from pastoring a church of, we can presume, at one time was upwards of 8,000 members. 
You study the early days, the New Testament church and the days of Pentecost and the days that shortly followed. And just a little back of the envelope math brings you to a number of about 8,000 people that were a part of that body and probably many more because the Bible says that the Lord added unto the church daily such as should be saved. I mean, literally, we're talking about a church that would have today been called a mega church in this country. And then in just a matter of a few days or weeks or possibly months, it goes from being 8,000 to being only a handful that's left. They've all been scattered. They've all been driven away. And now here is a shepherd riding to his scattered flock trying to comfort them in the severe trial that they're going through. Now you might say, well, preacher, I don't know if that would be such a trial, but put yourself in their shoes for a moment. I mean, these are people that had families. People that had homes, people that had businesses, people that had lives. I mean, this wasn't a time in which finance and, and, and economics and money and currency was easily transferred and, 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 and moved and, and transported to different places. I mean, no doubt these people had left under cover of darkness and threat of death and they had fled with nothing, no doubt, but the clothes on their back. And now they've gone from being people who had a life they had built to now being, being refugees in a, in, a, in a foreign place to them, in a place where they have no help and no support system. We could rightly say their life has completely fallen apart. And James is their pastor and, and his heart is breaking for them and he's writing to them, trying to comfort them and guide them and shepherd and pastor them even in this time of exile in their life. This is no slight thing. This was a severe trial they were going through. And I want you to notice how James opens his counsel to these believers. Verse 2, he says, My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. That must have been hard to write and it must have been even harder to read. But under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, James takes pen in hand and counsels them to rejoice in the midst of their trials. James reveals three truths about our trials and I want to share them with you by way of introduction. The first thing he points to is this, that there can be peace in the midst of our trials. He says we ought to joy when we fall into divers temptations. I don't know about you, but I don't like that. I'll just be honest enough, all right? I'll just be truthful enough to tell you. I don't like that verse. That ain't my life verse, all right? I don't like that verse. Because when I'm going through trials, man, I don't want to joy. I want to whine. I don't, I don't want to praise. I, I want, I want to just pull the blanket over my head and give up when I'm struggling. I, I don't want to, I don't want to be called on to encourage anyone. I just want to be discouraged. But James says, no, as believers in Jesus Christ, even in the midst of the severest of trials, you say, preacher, I, I got a bad health report. Preacher, my finances are tight. Preacher, I've got problems in my home. Probably none of us tonight is facing the measure of trials that these believers were. And if James could tell them that they could have peace and joy in their trials, then friend, you and I can have peace and joy in our trials. Hey, listen, there can be peace in our trials. Then notice verse three says this, knowing this. Oh, that's the key. If we're going to have joy, there's some things we've got to know. What do we need to know? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. James will go on to expand and expound on this truth. But can I just notice something? James says this, God's growing you through your trials. Let me say it this way. There can be peace in our trials, but there will be perfecting in our trial. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, God's not doing nothing. Sometimes you and I are doing nothing. You ever call somebody on the phone? 
What you doing? They say, nothing. I used to think people were just, you know, being folksy. And then I started to get around people sometimes, and I realized, no, that's what they're doing. They're just doing nothing. Laying on the couch, just doing nothing. Sometimes we might be doing nothing. But, hey, God's never doing nothing. God's always doing something. He's always working in lives. In your life and in my life. Listen, He's working when the sun is shining. He's working when the clouds are gathering. He's working when the uh, bright light of, of joy and of ease and of pleasure and of prosperity are shining down on our life. And He's working even when the storms are gathering and the clouds are gathering and the hail is falling and the rain is uh, torrential. He's working even then. And what James wants them to understand is God's not doing nothing. He's working in their life. The trying, the testing of your faith, what does it do? It worketh patience. You're having to trust God right now and that's not comfortable and it's not easy. But God is growing you through the midst of it. But then look at verse 4. He says this, but let patience have her perfect work, that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, let me remind you the definition of the word perfect in the Bible is not meaning spotless or stainless. At least most of the time, that's not what it means. Most of the time, it means mature or fully developed. He's saying let patience have her complete work, her full work. Her developed work. Why? That ye may be perfect. That ye may be developed. That ye may be fulfilled. That ye may have all these things brought about in your life. Perfect and entire. Then he says wanting nothing. That doesn't mean that we're never going to desire things. But what he's saying when he speaks of wanting is something that is lacking. And he's saying that God is working in your life. But if you're not careful, you won't allow God to bring all that he can out of your trial. You'll only get a portion of it if you won't trust Him, if you won't look look to Him, if you won't lean on Him, if you won't let patience have her perfect work, you'll get something out of it, but you won't get out of it all that you could if you just simply would have trusted Him. I would say this, there can be peace in our trials and there will be perfecting in our trials, but there must be patience in our trials. In other words, James is reminding us of this important truth. Hey, listen... We don't get to schedule our trials. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be good? Don't you wish we could just schedule our, our problems and schedule our trials? Don't you wish we could just sit there and say, well, I'm going to wait until I'm feeling good and feeling strong and the bank account's full and my health is doing good. And, you know, then once I'm braced and I'm ready for it, then then I'll schedule a trial and I'll go ahead and have problems arise in my life. No. We don't get to schedule our trials. In fact, the Bible describes trials, particularly as you age in life, as being like clouds of rain that come one after another. In other words, when it hit the rainy season, it don't rain a bunch and then stop. It hits a season and it's one cloud after another. And often our our trials, they don't come in, in singles or even in pairs, but they come in quartets, they come in groups, they come sometime in hordes of problems that are coming to our life. Man, we don't get to schedule our trials and we can't always escape our trials. Don't you wish there was just some kind of ripcord? You ever, you ever thought to yourself, you just going through life and, and just wondered why they didn't install, why God didn't install one of those ropes up there on the city buses that you could just pull and then get off at the next stop? You just looked at the things you was going through and thought, Lord, why didn't you build me a ripcord on this thing? Why didn't you give me an escape hatch? But the fact is we can't escape our trials, but here's what we can do. We can make the most of our trials. And that's what James is talking about. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight, getting the most out of your trials. 
I know none of us would choose to have trials if we could help it. But knowing that the perfect providential hand of God dispenses trials and temptations and problems and seasons of suffering to our life, we can do one of two things. We can either get bitter and sulk and refuse to trust God, or we can say, God, I know you have a plan in this, and I'm purposing to get the absolute most out of this that I possibly can. Let me tell you, the wisest thing you'll ever do is say, now, Lord, if this is what you have for me, I want you to have all of me in the midst of. And I want, Lord, to get all that you have for me in what I'm experiencing. James tells us that we should strive to get the most out of our trials. And he gives us four things that we can do to make the most of our trials. I want you to notice them very quickly and we'll be done tonight. Look at verse 5 with me. James says this, if any of you lack wisdom, let me just pause and raise my hand right there. I'll just go ahead and just confession's good for the soul. I'll raise my hand. He's talking to me. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. That's a precious verse. In other words, if you don't know what to do, you ought to ask him what to do because he wants to share with you what to do. And he won't fuss at you for not knowing what to do. That's what it means when it says he upbraideth not. You ever done something to make your wife mad as a sprayed hornet and she just give you the business? You were being upbraided. All right. The Lord doesn't do that. Amen. Say amen, ladies. The Lord doesn't do that. He upbraideth not and it shall be given him. Uh, Let me say it this way. You say, preacher, how can I make the most out of my trials? Well, here's how we can do it. Number one, let us seek him in his wisdom in the midst of our trials. Every trial you go through is a growing experience, but it's also a learning experience. It's an opportunity to go to the Lord and seek his heart, his mind, and his wisdom concerning what to do. Uh, the other day, uh, my, my garage door broke, and uh, it, it broke. It's almost like somebody slid that little lock closed and then messed something up and then opened the door, and then it all bowed up and started creaking and sounded like the earth was shaking apart and then stopped. But nobody did that, so I don't know what happened to it. Um, but the, the garage door got all messed up got all broken, and um, it was making this popping noise, this crazy just, and garage doors, you ain't never messed with them like a mystery. They're just, it, voodoo is how they work, really, and black magic, sorcery, and um, it was making this, this this noise, and man, I had I had opened and closed that garage door a thousand times. I watched, I didn't, I didn't even know what I was looking for, but I watched it, you know, and then one day, the Lord just showed me what the issue was with it. There's a cable that was wound up wrong, and it was skipping across a, a, a wrap of that cable and everything. So I fixed that garage door. It sounds better than it did before my wife, before it broke. <laughs> and then the next day, mom and dad called me because dad's garage was broken. So apparently this is something I have a gift for. I don't know, but they said, Toby, come over and help me with the garage. And we went over and we messed with, with, with his garage door and everything. We figured out what was wrong, installed some new parts and put it on there. I told my wife later, I said, I feel like I'm getting to be brilliant. I'm learning to fix things I never knew how to fix before. Because the more things tear up, the more... <laughs> I'm be getting ready for camp, amen. Just pray for me. <laughs> and so the, the more things tear up, the more I'm learning. I've learned how to fix, and this is one of the great things about owning old junk, is you learn how to fix things, amen? I've learned how to fix appliances. I've learned how to fix different things at the house. I've learned how to do things. And I wouldn't have never learned how to do those things had things not broke. 
Uh, there's some people go through life, something breaks, they just throw it away, buy a new one. That must be nice, amen. The rest of us, we gotta, we got to get on the old Google or the YouTube and figure it out and try to educate ourselves. Because when things break, all of a sudden, I, I need help, I have to go somewhere, I have to learn, I have to seek. But you know, if nothing ever broke, I wouldn't learn nothing. Now this may seem simple, it may seem elementary, it may even seem a little silly to you. But the reality is this, if you didn't have the problems you have in life, you probably just know in your flesh that it's like my flesh, we would never seek the Lord about things. And God brings these trials in our life and he's not angry, he's not petty, he's not jealous and vindictive. But he knows that we'll get far more out of coming to him than we would out of just the smooth sailing of an undisturbed life. And so he allows these things that we might seek him in his wisdom. That we might come to him to gain his knowledge and his wisdom. And I will just tell you in my Christian walk, there have been things that I've learned of God and, and things I've learned about God that I could have only learned because of the trials I was going through. If I hadn't faced those things, I would have never known that. You say, well, preacher, I'm going through a trial. Well, go to God about it. You might be surprised what God's trying to teach you about himself through this trial that you're going through. I would say, number one, let us seek him in his wisdom. But then look at verse number six. The Bible says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. There's a few words that jump out of those verses, and they provide for a sort of a summary of the thought that James is communicating. In verse 6, we see the word wavering and wavereth and like a wave of the sea. We also see the word tossed there. And then down in verse number 8, we see this word unstable. In other words, James is describing someone that is fickle, someone that is uncommitted. We could use this term, somebody that's flaky. Someone that says one thing one minute and then does something different the next minute. And he says, you know, when you're going through trials, you better come to God and you better seek him with determine and focus and singularity if you want God's help in the midst of that. Now, here's the question. Could any of us ever come to God with a good enough attitude that we would deserve his help? No, of course not. Could any of us ever come to God with such resoluteness and such singularity and such focus and intensity that God would look from heaven and say they deserve my help? No, of course not. So why then does God put this parameter? You see, all things being relative in a certain sense, we're all flaky. Every one of us. We're all double-minded to a degree. We're all unstable to a degree. So why does God put this requirement upon us? Here's why. Because he's wanting us through our trials to become less so. Let me say it this way. Well, let us seek seek him in his wisdom. But number two, let it steady us in our walk. You know why it's easy to be flippant? It's easy to be flippant when things are going well. Because much of what we occupy our life with really doesn't matter. You've heard me say this before, but New Testament Christianity is overbuilt for the world that we're living in. We have so much ease and so much luxury and so much prosperity. I'm not begrudging it. I'm just calling balls and strikes here and noticing the fact that that much of what we read in the Bible does not really resonate with us because we're living such such lush and easy lives. 
So much so that the Bible Christian, we read about something like this, afflictions, trials, and all we think about is a bill that was more than we thought it would be. All we think about is some little snafu with, with somebody that's a friend or a loved one. All we think about is, is, is some little disappointment that comes in our life. And James is writing to people that have literally been stripped of everything that they knew. And he's saying, you know, this trial that you're going through, it's going to cause you to have to seek God with desperation. It's going to cause you to have to seek God, not just because you want Him, but because you need Him. Because you can't live without Him. Because you don't know where to turn but Him. It's going to cause you to cast yourself shipwrecked upon His promises, looking to Him for an anchor and a help and a hope in the midst of this storm. And He's saying, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It should steady us and make us realize that we don't just need Him when things are bad. Man, we need Him all the time. But when when things are going good, we get to thinking we don't need Him. So every once in a while, God lets things unravel a little bit to remind us that unstableness, that double-mindedness, God is not pleased with. Let it steady us in our walk with Him. But then notice a third thing. Look at verse 9. These verses, if I'm being honest, have always been a little odd to me. But I believe I understand them in the context here. He says this, Let the brother of low degree rejoice... In that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. He's writing to a group of people. Some of whom, hey, listen, the, the, the devil don't just persecute rich folk, poor folk too. And he's writing to a group of people. No doubt some that he had written to were poor people who had been driven from their homes. No doubt others he had written to were very affluent, very prosperous, very rich. And all that wealth had been left behind in Jerusalem and they had fled away. He's talking to these two disparate groups of people. And he says, for the one of low degree. The impoverished, the poor one, the the meager and meek one. Let them rejoice in that they are exalted. And the rich, let them rejoice in that they are made low. In other words, he's saying this. You poor folks got a lot richer in your trials. And you rich folks got a lot poorer in your trials. And both of them are something to bless the name of the Lord for. Now, why would that be so? I began to think about an occurrence in the New Testament when the Bible describes the apostles who were arrested for the testimony of the Lord Jesus and how that they had taken them and thrown them in, in prison and, and, they, and they beat them and then they released them. And the Bible says that when they left, they went away rejoicing that they would be counted worthy to suffer for his name. They left that trial happier than they were before they went into that trial. And they said, you know, it's a glorious thing that God would think so much of us that he'd let us suffer for his name. In other words, when they left, they said, you know, what a blessed thing that God's working in our life and that God thinks enough of us that he would entrust us with persecution, knowing that we wouldn't break, that we wouldn't flake, that we wouldn't give out and quit and go home. And instead, he, he entrusted us to experience this suffering. And, and now through this, we brought glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they were exalted through their suffering. What they purchased unto themselves through their suffering and through their testimony, they considered to be of high value and high esteem. 
Now, here's these other people that James is writing to, these rich folks, and they thought all of their stability and all of their life and all of their value and all of their purpose was vested and wrapped up in these riches that they had. And here's what they learned. They learned that all that could be gone in a moment. In fact, let's let's simplify a little further. For the poor fella and for the rich fella, you know what they both learned? They both learned what's really lasting and what really matters in life. Let me say it this way. Let us seek him in his wisdom and let it steady us in our walk. But number three, let it sober us in our worldview. I'm in the hospitals a lot visiting people and it's not uncommon for me to go and, and, and walk through a hospital. And, you know, most hospitals that you walk through, I mean, there's a thousand entrances, but usually the main entrance will be somewhere near the emergency room. There's always this thought that strikes me, particularly I go down to UT Hospital, and for most people where they park, a very common interest, you'll have to walk through the waiting room of, of, of people that are very often waiting for trauma and emergency and things like that. And I always think to myself when I walk through that room, not one of these people thought they'd be here today. None of them did. And I've seen families just just racked in, in, in anguish. I've seen them with tears in their eyes. I've, I've seen them trying to reconcile and pick up the pieces and thought to myself, you know, that could be me tomorrow. That could have been me today. And sometimes in life, you just things get so good that you you begin to think that there is some substance to those things. And all it takes is one trial. The old preachers used to say one phone call. And your whole life could change. You know what persecutions do? It gives us a right appreciation for just how fleeting some things are in life. And what really matters. There's some things that matter to you now that won't matter then. Listen, when your world breaks apart and rips apart at the seams, there's some things that you think are real important now that at that time you just won't give a rip about. You won't care one way or the other. I think about how deeply involved, and I got I got political opinions. I got loud ones. But I think about how involved we as believers get with the political landscape. And, you know, early New Testament Christians didn't have have a problem with that. You know why? Number one, they didn't have rights. They didn't have rights. And number two, because they understood that their citizenship was in heaven. And they just didn't get all that tore up about which clown sat on the throne down here. It just didn't really matter to them that much. Like I said, I don't say that to say I got some kind of middle-of-the-road neutral opinion. My opinion is they all hate us. But I'm just telling you there's things like that that we just get so tore up and we get so involved in. And really the reality is, hey, listen, you get that phone call that it's been your youngster who's laying in a hospital somewhere, you ain't going to care about that. You get that phone call that it's your bank account that went from all those numbers on a computer that we thought were wealth, all of a sudden somebody pushed a button and it's all gone, and that stuff won't matter anymore. Listen, I'm just telling you, trials have a way of adjusting our perspective of sobering our worldview, and that's a good thing. God uses that to give us a right perspective on eternity and time and our opportunities. I would say this, let us seek him in his wisdom and let it steady us in our walk. Let it sober us in our worldview. But look at verse 12 with me. He says this, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. It's one of the five New Testament crowns that 
are described, can be awarded to a believer. And you might look at that kind of with cynicism. You're like, well, why do I care about that? You know, why, why do I want a crown? You know, in, the new, in, in the book of Revelation, the Bible describes the saints gathered around the feet of Jesus as taking those crowns and casting them at his feet. See, that crown's going to mean a lot to you if you're empty-handed there that day. And knowing that that crown, it represents your testimony, your love for Him, your, your suffering for Him, and that you could take that crown and give it back to Him and give it a, a, as a love offering unto Him to say, Now, Lord, all this, it was all for You because You're worthy. Those crowns are pretty important. But I'm interested in this first word in verse 12, blessed. That's a word we don't associate with trials. Blessed. When we're in a trial, we don't feel blessed. There's a whole cottage industry of people that are peddling a formulation of religion that in which blessedness is the currency that they're selling things to people based on. Well, if you do this and if you do that, you'll have a, a blessed life. What they really want to say is a charmed life, but it sounds too pagan. Because the idea of blessedness in the Bible is not always associated to, to pleasing or, 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 or palatable or pleasant experiences. You see, blessed is not a temporal designation. It's a spiritual status. It's something that is that is in our life related to God's favor and God's love and God's promises. And it doesn't always manifest in things being easy or things being simple. Oftentimes, the most blessed people in the Bible were people who endured temptation. And so the, the writer of the book of James says, the person that goes through temptation, that endures it, that lets patience have her perfect work, not that escapes it, but that endures it. Some of us spend all of our time trying to figure out a way to escape it instead of asking God for grace to endure it. But the person that just trusts it to God and says, Lord, I don't understand, but I'm not going to get out of your, your will. I'm not going to get out of church. I'm not going to start walking in sin. I'm not going to try to figure out a way to strong arm my way out of this. I'm just going to trust you with this situation. That person is a blessed person. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Now, you think about a crown, you know, the idea here being the, uh, the, the laurel that would be given to athletes at that time. The laurel was given in recognition of an event, of an accomplishment, and of an ability that existed apart from that laurel. You see, that laurel did not have in, any intrinsic value, except in as much as it represented the status and ability and talents of the athlete that they would put it on. And it's interesting to think. The Lord says, I'm going to give a crown of life to them that endure temptation. You see, here, here's what I'm saying. I don't think the blessing is that you get a crown. I think you get a crown because it is a blessed thing to endure temptation. In other words, it is the approval that gives purpose and meaning to the laurel or to the crown that's given. The crown is a manifestation or a token of the approval of a governing body. And here's what James is saying. He's saying this, when we endure temptation, God's pleased with it. He's pleased with it. Let me say it this way. Let it satisfy us with his will. You know, one of the greatest things you can learn in the midst of your trials is just to simply be pleased if God's pleased. To recognize that what you're going through, far above and beyond anything that you may derive out of it, is for his good pleasure and for his glory, and that if he's pleased, that's enough. That's enough. In fact, I don't think it's by accident that there's a progression here, you understand. 
that James is, is presenting to us. And, and that the epitome, the, the apex of that is that we simply be pleased that he please, he's pleased. In other words, it is the very acme of spiritual maturity to be content with him being pleased. I, I mean, we never look more like Christ than when we're simply pleased that he's pleased. You understand the entirety of the earthly ministry of Christ was for just simply to please the Father. Beyond the opinions of men, hey, beyond even the act of redemption. Listen, I'm convinced if it had pleased the Father to let us die and go to hell, he would have never left heaven. He wouldn't have displeased his Father even because he loved you. We're saved because he pleased the Father. He said, I do always those things that please the Father. My meat is to do that will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We never look more like Jesus than when we're just satisfied that he's satisfied. And in your life, one of the greatest things you can do to make the most out of your trial, quit setting, quit putting out fleeces, quit setting shelf dates, quit trying to lay thresholds and say, now God, if you get me out of it in this way, in this fashion, I'll know that you love me. I'll know that you're this, that you're that. And just simply try to recline in his promise and say, Lord, I'm content that you're content. If I spend the rest of my days experiencing this, if it pleases you, I'll be pleased. I'll tell you this, it's not easy. And the people that James is writing to are people that are not going through slight trials. They didn't just lose the TV remote and the couch, all right? These are people dealing with serious problems. And he says, you know, if you can learn to just be pleased that he's pleased, you have no idea the peace of mind and peace of heart and joy that that can give you. If our metric for God's favor is constantly determined by whatever arbitrary thresholds and and lines that we draw in the sand, man, we're going to constantly be questioning God's love. But if instead we'll start from Calvary and say, I know he loves me because he's proved he loved me. And anything that happens in my life, I can simply interpret through the prism of that love. Then we're ready for anything. I hope you and I, I hope we learn to make the most out of our trials and not let them go to waste. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, I want to give you the opportunity to talk to the Lord this evening. Whatever he's spoken to you about, I don't know what you're going through. I don't have to know what you're going through. The Lord knows. But here's what I think we ought to all resolve to do, whatever it is we're experiencing, to make sure that we don't let it go to waste. Because it is not a waste. God is not doing it for no reason. And if we'll trust in him, he'll bring about perfecting in glory for himself and perfecting for us if we'll make the most out of it. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.